Today, the title of the sermon is Check Your Motives. As we continue our series called How to Deal with an Injustice. So far, the first week, we talked all about listening with our ears and our hearts open uh, rather than being dismissive when other people are saying they've experienced something. And after we've listened and we've heard, we engage with those who've, who have experienced an injustice and hopefully use our influence to help those in need. And as we just saw from that video, the Bible actually has a lot to say about justice. And for the Christian, this is when we must put our faith into action. And it's not always easy, especially when it comes, well, to justice. Because when we claim that an injustice has occurred, when we are agreeing with someone saying, yes, an injustice has happened to you, happened to you, what we are saying then is that we know what justice is. If an injustice has happened, that means we're claiming to know what justice is. And for us as Christians, and this may be a little bit difficult for some of us today, we have to understand that justice isn't found in the Constitution. Justice isn't found in the American dream. Our standard of justice is found in the Bible. As New Testament scholar Scott McKnight explains, he says this. He says, it starts with this. In the Bible, God defines justice. Neither Israel's legal scholars, nor kings, nor prophets got together and determined what justice was. Nor did they have a constitutional congress of representative citizens who gathered to hammer out justice major themes. Nor was there a democratic vote on the answer to the question, what is justice? In the Bible, God reveals and declares what justice is. And this is so important because as Christians, we don't get to define justice. God already has. And he goes on to say that for the Christian, justice is thoroughly spiritual before it is social. In other words, one must be justified in order to live justly. One of the key theological terms of our faith, and I hope you've heard this before and we sung about it in the very first song, is this term called justification. And which again, this is a key doctrine and has to do with how our standing, how we are declared right before God. And as I hope you know, the only reason we are declared right before God is because of Jesus Christ, because he was the just and the perfect one. So we are justified by our faith in Christ. And so for justice, the primary concern in the Bible when it comes to justice is that first, people are made right with God. Being made right with God is the most important justice we can seek. And then when we are made right with God through Jesus Christ, we become agents of his justice in the world. For Jesus, justice is about restoring people in society to the love of God and the love of others. That is the only way justice will ever emerge if we restore people and point them to God, through a relationship in Jesus Christ, and then we love each other. The dual command, of course, Christ gave us. Which means if we are standing for an injustice or someone is claiming an injustice has happened, we must first check our motives before we take a stand. We must truly think through what we are trying to accomplish if we stand for an injustice. 
Because right now, and perhaps for a while, it's pretty popular to take a stand. It's, it's trendy to stand up for something. I mean, all sorts of things. I, Seems like it's what social media is all about, or what your new thing that you're doing and how you're speaking out for something. But I'm here to tell you that Christians have been taking a stand for injustices for a long, long time because of our faith. Because we've been justified, our theology of justification leads us to be agents of justice in the world. How we are declared innocent in God's eyes because of grace has us move into this world and help others know God and show them love and grace that he has given us. And while that sounds great and it sounds amazing, the truth is what lies at the heart of each one of us, the common human experience is, well, we want mercy, but strict justice for others. Isn't that true? When you do something wrong, you want forgiveness, you want grace, you want mercy, but when someone else does it, whew, it's time to lay the hammer down. And this is usually the time in the sermon where I'll share with you how I've experienced this, but I don't wanna share those stories with you. Right, it's embarrassing. It's tough when we realize that when people wrong us, we wanna throw down the hammer, but when we do it, oh, you need to forgive me and forgive me quick. But I just want you to know all of us share that. We want mercy, we want forgiveness, but can easily want strict justice for those who've hurt us. But God, well, God offers mercy and grace for all. And the truth is we have a hard time with that, especially when we have to apply it. But lucky for us, we're not the only ones. When we find ourselves wanting revenge, you ever wanted that? Don't raise your hand today. You ever wanted revenge? You ever wanted somebody else to pay for what they've done? You ever felt like destroying something, wanting to hurt others because they hurt you? Well, God has something to say about that. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Jonah. Even if you don't, while you you turn there, I'll catch us all up because even if you don't know the book of Jonah, you're probably familiar with the story. This is the guy who gets swallowed by a really big fish. And that's usually what everybody wants to talk about. And this was written long before Pinocchio, just to let you know. And, and we talk about the fish and we get stuck on the book of Jonah saying, did he get swallowed by a fish? Did it really happen? But I'm here to tell you the fish plays such a small, small little tiny role in the overarching story of the book. See, the point of the story is, well, You'll see, look at this. It says in Jonah 1, 1 through 2. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go into the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So to give you some backstory, we learn in 2 Kings that Jonah was a prophet during the growth period of Israel. In fact, he was the one who announced to the king that your kingdom will expand, like your kingdom's going to grow. So Israel's in a time of prosperity, but as with a lot of kingdoms, their growth goes to their head. They start getting arrogant. They start getting prideful in themselves in their new expansion, their new territory. So they continue to do evil, both the king and the people. And so Jonah was the one who announced and said, listen, the kingdom's going to grow. And as it did, and as it started going to his head, God sent Amos and Hosea to announce to the people that, listen, 
God's not going to spare you if you don't repent. God's not going to spare you. You're going to go into exile beyond Damascus, meaning Assyria. And Assyria? Well, they're Israel's worst enemies. The Assyrians were known for being brutal and extremely violent. Too violent to talk about on a Sunday morning. I mean, it was that bad. They prided themselves in cruelty and torture and killing. And Assyrians were to the north and they were a very real threat, kind of like the exact opposite of Canada, right? Does anybody look at Canada as a threat? Right, no, the exact opposite of that is what the Assyrians were. They were a real threat to Israel and they'd already started to capture and, and take some people into captivity. And so Jonah prophesied, he said, listen, Israel's going to expand and they enjoyed that expansion. But during the same time, this God sent Hosea and Amos to say, listen, yeah, you're expanding, but it doesn't mean you can do evil. It doesn't mean you can ignore me. In fact, if you don't turn from your ways, Israel, I'm gonna go ahead and let Assyria wipe you out. I'm gonna let the Assyrians take you in to exile. And so God sends Jonah to the Assyrians. That's who this is. That's what Nineveh is, the city of Assyria. He's telling, I, I want you to go and preach against them. And Jonah knows that Hosea and, and Amos have prophesied that these are gonna be the people to take them out. And so he has to go to these mean, cruel, torturing people and preach against them. Well, how many of you would wanna do that? Are y'all following me or do I need to repeat? We'll start over. Y'all following me? Yeah. How many of us would want to go to a place that's known for brutally killing and torturing? We're like, no, I wouldn't want to do this. This could cost him his life. Look at verse three. It says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord. Isn't that funny? Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And this is what's so amazing. Jonah clearly heard what God wanted him to do. How many of, how many of you have begged God to clearly hear what he wants you to do? You're like, God, I want to know your will. I want to know. Jonah clearly hears and then runs the opposite direction, trying to run from God. And this is the only record in scripture of a prophet ever disobeying God. He runs and flees. And even if you don't know the story, even if you've never heard this, it doesn't take much insight to realize running from God doesn't sound very smart. You can't run from God, but he tried. So he boards this ship and he heads off. And a great storm came, a violent storm came upon the ship. And evidently it was so bad, it was so different, it, for whatever reason, they knew that this was something weird going on. And so they started crying out to their gods because there was a lot of different people from different faiths saying, what's going on? We need help. They started crying out, started throwing all their cargo overboard, but Jonah was sleeping in the bottom of the ship. He's like, yeah, I, I know what's going on. I'm good. So he was just peacefully asleep. Everybody's panicking. And the captain goes to wake up Jonah and says, hey, don't you see what's going on? Let's go upstairs and cast Lot to see who's responsible. Casting Lot was a way they could have impartial decisions made and they trusted the Lord for it. And so this was so violent, so out of, out of the ordinary, they cast Lot and the Lot fell on Jonah. They said, Jonah, who's responsible for this? He said, well, the God I serve is the God who created the sea and the God who created the land. And yeah, I'm running from him. 
He told him he, he owned it. And look at what he says, verse 12, it says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Jonah's rationale is, well, if I stay in the boat, God's gonna destroy the boat. So you might as well just throw me overboard and I'm the only one who has to die. On a side note, I wonder how many, uh, how many storms we've created in our lives by disobeying God. We'll come back to that a different day. But if it truly was God, he didn't wanna be held responsible for all these other people dying. So they did, they threw him overboard. You see, when Jonah first said, throw me overboard, he said, they said, no, well, if this is your God, we don't want to kill you. Like, we'll be held responsible. So they tried to beat the storm, tried to beat the waves, and it didn't work. So eventually, they just throw him over. But the story isn't over. God sends a humongous fish to evidently swallow Jonah whole to where he stayed in the belly of the fish for three days. Y'all seen Pinocchio before? That imagery is the first thing that comes to mind, isn't it, right? Sitting in the belly, all right. Not too sure what it looked like, but there you go. And when he's in the belly of this fish, he does what any of us would do. Praise, wouldn't you? Yeah, anybody else? Yeah, now you need God's help, right? Of course you do. So I'm just gonna read a, the first two verses of the prayer and then the last. He says this, from the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I call for help and you listen to my cry. Look at verse nine. He says, but I will shout, but I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And he realizes that being thrown overboard isn't just about dying. He could spend a while in the belly of a fish and realizes this may be just worse than death itself. So he cries out to the Lord for help and he says, listen, I'll go ahead and make true to my vow. I'm a prophet. I said I would do what you've asked me to do. I'm gonna go ahead and do what you want me to do now. Like the fish has gotten my attention. I'll go proclaim to these people that salvation comes from the Lord. You see, when he disobeys God, when he's in the wrong, when he's in sin, he wants mercy, doesn't he? He wants compassion. He wants God to forgive him. So he does, he goes to Nineveh and it takes him three days to get through the city because it's so large. And he preaches for 40, that in 40 days, the city will be overthrown. And we're not sure exactly what he says, but that's all, it tell us, that's all it tells us that he says. So he probably had a very short sermon, just walked around saying 40 days, whole thing's gonna be done. Really wasn't vested in this, really didn't wanna be there uh, to begin with. Look at verse five, Jonah 3, five, it says, and the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king, he too declared a fast calling all people to repent and give up their evil ways, urging them to turn to God. And the king said, hopefully he won't wipe us out like Jonah says he will. Verse 10, when God saw they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. That sounds like a win, doesn't it, for a prophet? A prophet's called to a city and the entire city and the king, all of these evil people repent and turn to God. Like they stop worshiping false gods and start worshiping the true God. Does that sound like a win to you? Yeah, well, not to Jonah. 
4.1, but Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. See, not only had these people hurt his people, not only are they a threat, God, you said these are gonna be the people that's going to come wipe us out. So we've already seen what they had done, Lord. We see what they're currently doing, but you've said they're gonna take us out. Why are you going to spare the people who is going to destroy us? Can you see why he's angry? God, why would you do this? And this is where we must tune in because so far the author has been having us guess what Jonah's motives are. Maybe he's scared, maybe he's nervous, but that's not it at all. Look at verse two. It says, and he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sinning calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. You see, Jonah ran because he was afraid that they were going to repent and God would forgive them. Jonah didn't want them to be forgiven. Jonah is furious with God because he's gracious which means, of course, he's merciful. He gives people things they don't deserve. He's mad at God for being compassionate. And this word expresses it in the understanding and loving nature of a mom to her children. Slow to anger, which means patient and long-suffering. Abounding in love, and this refers to the covenant love of God. We don't have one word in our language that expresses this uh, that's in the Hebrew language, and it's about redemption of sin and encompasses the qualities of kindness and loyalty and unfailing love. And he's mad at God for relents from sending calamities. It's like, God, you're not going to wipe them out. I need you to see this because this is so important. He's arguing with God because he's good and loving. He's upset at God because of the attributes we're so thankful for when it personally happens to us. Jonah didn't want the people who did all the wrong to be forgiven. He didn't want them to be helped. He didn't want them to experience God's grace. He wanted them to experience strict justice. He wanted God to wipe them out. But when he sinned, when he disobeyed, what did he want? Mercy, grace, and forgiveness. You see, this story is in the biblical canon because we all have to confront this because it's in each and every one of us. We want mercy and forgiveness really quick. We don't want it to extend it to those who have hurt us. And listen, I don't know what people have done to you. And I may agree with you when you tell me your story about how terrific and hard. And I, and I may agree that how you feel and what you want to do and, and what you think should be done. I may agree with you, but I'm just letting you know what the Bible says about it. How God views this. You see, we want mercy, but want others to experience a strict justice. And he was so upset with God. He said, God, just kill me. If you're going to forgive these kind of people, just take me out. I don't even want to live anymore. James Bruckner says, 
He cannot live, however, with the social reality of the forgiven Ninevites living in that mercy. These simultaneous realities, his confidence in and his objection to God's mercy present us with the complexities of faith in a Lord who cannot be tamed and whose mercy and forgiveness cannot be controlled. All who attempt to limit God's gracious action share in Jonah's protest. Let me die now. Your grace is too abundant. I want only the grace that has come to me. Jonah's, well, God's not done because God replied, is it right for you to be angry? And our replies, of course it's right, Lord. Don't you know what they've done? Haven't you seen? Haven't you heard? Didn't you see? Don't you know? Jonah doesn't answer that one. He ends up just walking away from that question. But he's not done yet. Surprisingly, Jonah just goes right outside of the city and sets up camp. He's hoping God ends up destroying him anyways. So what he's doing, he sets up camp outside, hoping that this repentance doesn't take, and he kind of just peeks out over to see what happens to the city, and he makes a shelter. And evidently, the shelter doesn't protect him from the hot sun, and so God says, okay, I'm going to teach him a lesson. So he provides a big plant that grows up really quickly to provide shade for Jonah. And if you've ever been in the Middle East or you've been to Israel any of those times, you know that it's hot. It gets very hot. So this shade was great. The thing comes up and it provides protection from his head. Jonah says he was very happy about the shade. But then God had a worm come and eat it, took it away. It says, when the sun rose, God providing a scorching east wind. And I love that. You can easily skip over that. That after he takes away the shade, he makes it hotter for Jonah. He's like, oh, you're going to learn today, buddy. And so he provides a scorching east wind and sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Do you all notice these prophets are extremely emotional? Have you all picked up on that yet? They're very emotional people. I love it. It says, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from the left, and also so many animals or cows, it's kind of like, well, if you can't at least express compassion for the people, how about the animals, Jonah? Do they register with you? You see, the real absurdity God's showing him is that Jonah has more compassion for a plant than an entire city of people. And after all the time I've put into my yard this year, this hits home pretty hard. Have I spent more time and more effort tending my grass and caring and loving and showing forgiveness to other people? That hits close to home, doesn't it? Now, we all have a reason not to mow the grass today, right? It's like, oh, I gotta, I'm forgiving somebody right now. I'm gonna put that to the side. And you see, that's how the book ends. The question's left unfinished for you. It's where this book ends, but your quest begins. You see, this book must be read in light of Israel's history. 
You see, Assyria's repentance didn't last very long. Israel didn't turn from their evil ways. And the Assyrians took out Israel and put them in exile. In fact, it's, this is where we, we get the term, the lost tribes of Israel. Assyria is the one who does that. You see, no matter what somebody has done, no matter what somebody is doing, no matter what somebody will do, our goal is still to point them to our gracious, compassionate, loving God. You see, God's cre- wishes for his creation is salvation, not destruction. And it's not our responsibility to cause destruction when people are doing things or injustices are happening. We cannot stand for an injustice and in the process create more injustices. It doesn't work that way. It never will. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 44, 45, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. Do you know when you're acting like a child of God? When you aren't retaliating, when you aren't seeking revenge, when you aren't trying to hurt people, when you are praying for those who hurt you. We never said this would be easy. I mean, Jonah wants to die because of it. He's miserable because of God's grace. It says, and he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, before you take a stand for an injustice or while you were standing for an injustice, please check your motives. And I ask you, what's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish? Don't rationalize your sin. Don't justify your sin. Don't put faith to the side. Our faith doesn't work that way. As Scott McKnight says, for Jesus, justice is about restoring people and society to the love of God and the love of others. And so when we take a stand for an injustice, whether it's done to you or you're doing it at a national level, whatever it may be, whatever we're doing, we must be gracious like God, extending to people things they do not deserve. We must be compassionate. We must care for others like like a mother does for her child. We must be slow to anger that's patient and long suffering. We must do it with abounding in love that's kindness and forgiveness for other people. And so when we take a stand as a Christian, your primary stand is to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot control other people's actions nor are responsible for them. But as Christians, our action must always be loving and peace and harmony and seek the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of other people. You see, if we aren't trying to restore people to the love of God and love for each other, we're not standing for justice. We're standing for something else, but it's not justice. Because as Christians who've submitted to the king, who are living in the kingdom of Christ, his way is our way and he gets to define the terms. You see, this justice, and this is what's so amazing about the Bible, this justice transcends time and culture. It works in America just like it works in Africa, just like it works in Asia. As Christians, that's our standard. What the Bible says about it. You see, justice isn't any of our documents or any of our guiding laws, although we have that. But for us, it's a biblical thing because the Bible has so much to say about justice. 
So as Christians, check your motives. Before you start posting, before you start talking, before you start rallying, I just ask you to think through, what are you standing for? Are you standing to restore and redeem? Or are you standing to destroy and hurt? Because one's of Christ, the other isn't. And so for, as Christians, we should stand for righteousness and justice. But we view them through the cross and remember the great mercy and grace that our Savior has given to us. Because all people are image bearers of God. Even if they're sinful, even if they're evil, even if they might do something else someday. It's not our place to take care of that. That's God's. We point them to the cross, hoping they will experience God's love and forgiveness and mercy. So my word of cautious when you, caution is when you stand, be careful who you attach yourself to. Because people may be saying the same things at you, but their goal is completely different than your goal. And as Christians, our stand must be deeply rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Restoring harmony and love. Because Christ offers forgiveness, redemption, and reconciliation. Even to those who are committing the greatest injustices of the world. And I know that's hard. Jonah's response was, I'd rather die. But perhaps we can look at it in light of the cross and remember how grateful we are for Christ. And his grace and his mercy, oh, we're so thankful for. So extend that to others. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we just thank you so much for your love. Father, we all realize that you define justice. Father, we know the greatest injustice is the sin that all human beings have done. Well, we try to take your position and power and do our own thing. And Lord, we are so thankful that you forgive us for that. So Father, I pray that first, our primary concern is, as Christians, as your people, is to help people become justified by knowing Jesus Christ. That they understand that it's only through Jesus can they ever become agents of justice in this world. That true justice only comes from being justified by Christ. And Father, as we take our justification serious, the fact that we are made right with you, we extend that justice to our love for other people and help them truly experience your love and your grace and your forgiveness. Father, there are many people here or watching or listening that have been hurt in ways that I can't even imagine. Father, why I can't understand and I don't understand, we know you do. Father, I pray that they seek they seek restoration and forgiveness. Lord, I pray that they could forgive those who've harmed them. That they can be set free by that forgiveness. Understanding that you will hold people accountable one day. That you will restore justice. Vengeance is you, yours, you say. And we trust that. Father, while we don't understand that and we won't understand that, we trust in you. It comes down to matters of faith. That we really do trust you are God and we are not that you extend mercy and grace to all those, even those who have wronged us and hurt us in so many ways. And Lord, let us be agents of that grace and mercy into this world. Because Father, that is what you desire. So Father, let us be your ambassadors. 
Let our light shine even in the midst of darkness. Let us point people to the cross of Christ. Lord, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy. In the name of Jesus, we pray.